Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have a very, very special guest. We are honored to be blessed with the President of the United States, the 26th President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt. Mr. President, Colonel, how are you, sir? I'm pleased as punch to be here with you. Well, it's it's wonderful. We're we're um, recording this in Sioux Falls, and you've been to Sioux Falls before, haven't you? Campaigned here in the Bull Moose election of 1912. Yes, in South Dakota, which I carried, the only state of the union in which I had a majority in 1912. Well, 1912 was a very complicated race. There was more than two candidates. Can you, can you explain who your opponents were for the presidency in 1912? Well, the incumbent president was my successor, William Howard Taft. Now, of course, I had to come and challenge him over his going backward on many of our progressive reforms, especially regarding conservation. The Democrats had uh, finally uh, spurned William Jennings Bryan, supported only by farmers whose <clears throat> gate hung on one hinge, as I liked to say. He, of course, had been their nominee three times and had lost, the only three-time loser in our history to this point. And uh, they turned to a, a college professor, Woodrow Wilson, yes, who claimed to be a progressive, I'm not so certain about that. He was the governor of New Jersey at the time. And of course, the uh, socialists ran. Eugene Debs mm. uh, ran many times. Uh, but of course, the socialists are part of what I like to refer to as the, the lunatic fringe of American politics. Uh, along with the populists and the syndicalists, and the anarchists. Uh, yes, they're part of the lunatic fringe. And, and, and yet they had to be taken into consideration, really. The progressive movement was, I think, in some measure, an attempt to blunt socialism. The, the progressives, of whom I am one, sought to build a, a, a government of, of some greater 
power in order to make certain that uh, socialism would never win the day. I was worried about that, to be quite honest, that uh, if we didn't do something, who knows, the socialists might take power, the lunatic fringe might take control, and this had to be stopped. And so what, was, what were the issues of the day in 1912? Well, uh, J.P. Morgan, the great financier, controlled virtually the same amount of money as the federal government did. You can't have private power that strong, that powerful, in very few hands. You're going to have big business, and I'm really, in many areas, not an enemy of big business, and you're going to have big labor, and I'm certainly not an enemy of big labor. I think of myself as a, a descendant of Abraham Lincoln himself. And Lincoln often said that labor was superior to capital. Labor deserved the first place. And labor was more important, really, than property. And so we had to adopt policies that, uh, that recognized that. And, uh, in all kinds of ways, child labor laws and uh, other court decisions and, and, and really legislative decisions to, to, ensure, to ensure that uh, labor had a place at the table. And so as the campaign unfolded, who was the winner in 1912? Well, unfortunately, I, uh, I have to tell you that it was Wilson, the the Democrats, since the Civil War, had only elected one president, mm -hmm. Grover Cleveland, whom I knew. I, I was in the legislature when he was governor of New York, and we were both, uh, we were both reformers of a sort. We were both anti-Tammany Hall, anti-machine politics. That's really one of the reasons I got into politics, was to learn how this machine worked and to battle with it. And uh, Cleveland and I were, even though he was a Democrat, he was opposed to the Tammany machine. He was from Buffalo. The Tammany machine didn't want someone from Buffalo becoming governor of New York. And so we could cooperate on, on things of, the, of, of this sort. And uh, I know there are those who accuse me of, of making it possible for Wilson to win because I jumped in and into the primaries. And I won most of the primaries, including, I might add, his home state, Taft's home state of Ohio. But there, unfortunately, weren't enough primary elections for me to win the nomination. And at the convention, Taft controlled the machine of the Republican Party and steered the votes of the machine in his direction at the convention mm -hmm. to deny me the nomination. And Wilson uh, claimed to be a progressive and uh, became only the second Democrat since the Civil War to win. Well, you, you raised getting into politics. I was wondering if you could talk about earlier in your life and then why you got into politics in the first place and what was the first office that you ran for. I was homeschooled, if you can put it that way. I was taught at home by my parents and tutors, and 
the first school I went to was Harvard. And I was going to be uh, some kind of a naturalist. And uh, my father told me that if I was going to do something like that with my life and earn no money, that I'd better make sure that my desires and my needs were minimal, because I would not earn much money. And, and I, I did study that at Harvard. And of course, we were, we were raised right in Manhattan, right in New York City, in a brownstone. You can see pictures of me with my brother Elliot looking out the window at Lincoln, at a Lincoln's funeral cortege, uh, going through the city in 1865. I would have been uh, six, six, seven years old at the time. But uh, we can jump to the 1880s. I, I was 24 when I first ran for the state assembly. And part of it, I think, really was to fight the machine. The, the machine was controlled by Senator Conkling, Roscoe Conkling, very powerful, very corrupt senator. Well, in fact, I should tell you this, that in 1876, when Rutherford Hayes won the presidency, my father was slated to take over the port of New York. Very powerful position. Mm. Most of the money into the federal government came from that port, and he wanted to, uh, to clean up. It was very corrupt, to be honest, and he wanted to clean this up. And he thought my father would be just the man to do it. And Conkling, this was his, what would we say, his bailiwick. This was what he controlled. And Conkling wanted his man in that position. His man was not my father. His man, you might know the name, Chester Arthur. Yes, who became vice presidential nominee in 1880 when Garfield was nominated. Of course, Garfield was assassinated and Arthur became president. But he cheated my father out of that position. And then two years later, my father died. He was... 48, with stomach cancer, and died. And I blame Conkling in part for that. I don't know if that's fair, but I hold a grudge for what Conkling did. And so I was really determined to, to do what I could, to learn what this machine was all about, and, and to fight the machine, and to fight the Republican Party's should I say, slippage, really, from being the party of Lincoln. My great hero, and I wanted my party to continue to be the party of Lincoln and not the party of business, not the party of, of simply job holding, not the party of, of, of corruption in any way. How many terms did you serve in the New York State Assembly? I served three terms in the New York State Assembly. And, mm -hmm. and then I, I, I became civil service commissioner under President Harrison. I wanted to be assistant secretary of the Navy, but uh, Blaine, James G. Blaine of Maine, you mm -hmm. might remember that mm -hmm. name, 
corrupt fellow himself, if I might add. I tried to, well, in fact, I succeeded. <laughs> Not me alone, but I was part of the, oh, I don't want to call it a cabal, a part of the group who uh, did what we could to deny Blaine uh, the nomination. Ultimately, of course, he was defeated by by uh, Cleveland in 1884, and uh, Blaine became Harrison's Secretary of State. And, yes. And he wanted nothing to do with me, and, and so I, I lost that bid, and later became the police commissioner. Uh, I was only one of four police commissioners, but I must tell you, I was probably the most aggressive of the four, mm -hmm. and trying to clean up the corruption in the New York police force, where captaincies were going for this amount of money and uh, lieutenants for this amount of money oh, and, and uh, uh, payoffs to saloons or from saloons to the police to keep them out. And I was a night watchman, if you will, prowling the streets of New York as police commissioner. Hmm. So I really didn't hold elective office again until after the uh, Spanish-American War. How did you come to Dakota Territory? What, what led you to leave New York and go to Dakota Territory? I took hunting trips with my brother Elliot into uh, only, uh, only into Minnesota and into very, very eastern North Dakota. Mm -hmm. We were very young and this wasn't the only place. We went on hunting expeditions and trips all over the West. But I didn't come west until, well, the initial trip was, was simply an exploration trip. And I, I wanted to go out there to, to see the Dakotas, to see the west. I, and to be honest, I wanted to go out there while there was still buffalo left to shoot mm. out there. But I didn't really become serious about it all until after the death of my mother and my wife, Alice. They died on the same day, on Valentine's Day in 1884. And I went out there for a considerable length of time. And I, I really don't think I ever would have become president had I not done this. The West made me. My father had told me from my very early asthmatic days that I would have to make my body. And I did what he asked me to do. I did recover, but it really wasn't until I went out into the Dakotas for an extended period of time. And the first time I, I came back, I must say I had, I had the neck of a titan by the time I came back. And I had broad shoulders and a massive chest. My family didn't really recognize me. And I went out there repeatedly in the middle of the 80s. There was a terrible, terrible blizzard. And mm -hmm. I had a ranch there. It was the winter of 87, 88. And that was not the last straw, but it, it devastated me financially if in no other way. So how many cattle did you run? Oh, we had uh, a few hundred cattle. Okay. And I had, for the most part, faithful, loyal ranchmen out mm -hmm. there. Although I must tell you one of them, 
one of them stole cattle from a neighbor and was attempting to put the Roosevelt brand on the cattle that he had stolen. And sir, I fired him. I said, if you will steal for me, you will steal from me. And I dismissed him. And I also had experiences out there. I, I was a, a deputy sheriff. Uh, I, I, I had a canoe. It really wasn't a canoe. It was some kind of a boat. I don't remember exactly, but stolen. And I tracked them down, captured them, mm. and, and myself got them back to justice. Mm -hmm. And they rode the boat, and I got them back to justice. And I sat in the boat and never waste time. I read Tolstoy's Anna Karenina as I read Road in that boat. Never waste time. Why that book, Mr. Well, uh, Tolstoy is a very poor moral guide, I must tell you. Mm. Uh, all of this talk of uh, peace. Uh, but of course, uh, blessed, doesn't say blessed are the peace lovers. It's blessed are the peacemakers. Mm -hmm. And there is a difference. And Tolstoy was a, was a peace lover. But in, in truth, it was, uh, in truth, it was Edith who wanted me to read that book. Okay. I'm not sure why, but I did read it. I did <laughs> yeah. read it. And I do believe, uh, well, even when I was courting my first wife, Alice, who of course died, I, she spurned me and I, I, I don't know if it was my whiskers. I don't know if it was the arsenic on me from doing, dealing with the, this or that natural history project or the beard. I don't know what it was, but she did spurn me. And I had a winter of discontent during that time. But I can never waste time. It was then that I began writing the naval history of the War of 1812. Right. You should always take advantage of time that you have to accomplish things. So. Colonel, what are your favorite books? What are the books where you really have learned a lot about ethics, history, oh, uh, politics? Rudyard Kipling. Hmm. Yes, anything by Rudyard Kipling. I'm not an imperialist, but I do believe, you know what he said? I don't know where I read this, mm -hmm. but after the Spanish-American War, after that war, we took the Philippines, of course, and Kipling somewhere wrote, and it was brought to me. I, I would have papers brought to me all the time, especially as president. I had any number, I had a staff that would read papers every day to find out what the country was saying about me. And they were morally bound to uplift it. They were morally bound. I loved that phrase. And so I decided that we would stay there. McKinley at first decided to do that, and I honored that commitment. And of course, Kipling lost a son in the Great War, as I lost a son in the Great War. So he would be right there among American authors. Oh, my goodness. Many of the books that I read and the magazines that I read were all about the West and all about hunting. And, and uh, Audubon was a, uh, was a great uh, uh, model for me as well. I, I, any of that sort of thing I would, mm -hmm. I would read. Okay. Well, those are good tips for 
listeners. Um, you brought up the Spanish-American War and mm -hmm. Kipling's understanding of the Spanish's hollowness, perhaps, in their culture. What was your role in, the, in kicking off the war against Spain? I wanted to organize a, a volunteer unit. And it was mostly composed of Ivy League football players and polo players. I would, if I may tell you, I would disinherit a son of mine who refused to play intercollegiate football. What are a few broken bones compared to the glories of intercollegiate sport? And I would rather a son die than grow up a weakling. In 1906, in the middle of my presidency, 18 young men died playing football in the United States. And there was a great uproar abolish football. And I wouldn't hear of it. Football is an American game. It at once, one and the same time, it, 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 it teaches cooperation, teaches function together. And that's, this is the future of this country. People learning how to function together. And it's conquering territory at the same time. So it's a 19th century game, and it will be a 20th century game as well. But mollycoddle reformers wanted to abolish football. So of course, my solution was regulation. The National Collegiate Athletic Association was founded at my insistence to regulate the game of football, to oversee the game of football, to make certain that it would be maintained. Now, Polo is all the fun of football with the horse thrown in, so I'm not an enemy of polo at all. Now, baseball, of course, is a sissy game. And uh, Quentin, my dear son Quentin, loved baseball. In fact, he created a diamond on the White House grounds, and he got to know members of the Washington Senators' baseball team. Uh, but I've never understood baseball. And of course, it's become professional. Mm -hmm. I trust football will never become professional. No, can't possibly. It will destroy. It will destroy the game. It's also important, I should think, for gentlemen to play football. They, they can control themselves. I, I, are we being live here? I don't know if immigrants can really control themselves when it comes to this. But gentlemen need, need the. Uh, the, the temporary violence uh -huh. of football. And they will be able, I'm certain, to control themselves. So the Rough Riders, yes. Yes, well, let's go back to that. Back to the Rough Riders. We, I must tell you, we did have a few tennis players along. And I, and I, and I had my tennis cabinet. You might remember. Mm -hmm. That's what I called it, my tennis cabinet. We did any number of things. We, we swam the Potomac stock naked. Yes, we did. The French ambassador, I must say, Jules Jusserand, he was a member of the cabinet, along with Sir Cecil Spring Rice, the British ambassador. Springy, I called him. And Jusserand always insisted on wearing gloves. Nothing else, mind you, just gloves. He said, you never know when you're going to meet ladies. But, but there were also, of course, Western desperados who were part of the Rough Riders as well. Buffalo Bill wanted to join us, even though he was 52. 
-huh. But he couldn't get out of his engagement, so he didn't join us. Oh. We trained in Texas, uh -huh. and we then uh, journeyed by rail to Tampa. I had to clear yeah. gangplanks to make certain that we could get on the ship and get to Cuba, well, where yeah, I could yeah. have my personal battle experience. Army logistics was awful, wasn't it? Yes, there were many awful things about the army. I, 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 the professional army, the professional item, we don't need a standing army of great size. We need a few professionals, of course. But I came away from the Spanish-American War uh, quite critical mm -hmm. of any number of, uh, of uh, including the commanding General Shafter, mm -hmm. who was uh, incompetent. I don't know how else to say it. Well, and uh, nevertheless, we win. Nevertheless, we win. The United yes. States wins that war. Yes. Uh, maybe more due to Spanish weakness than our strength. Oh, dear. I suppose. I, uh, McKinley, of course, didn't want to fight the war. Didn't want mm -hmm. to prepare for the war. And Cleveland, before him, there was an uproar even then in the Cleveland presidency. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want In fact, you know what he said? He said that the Congress can go ahead and declare war if it wants to. But I am the commander in chief and I won't send troops anywhere. So if they want to make themselves uh, feeling good, mm -hmm. go ahead. But the army's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And McKinley wasn't really much better. He had all the backbone of a chocolate eclair. I can say things like that now that I'm no longer running for office. Right, right. Well, Mr. President, this has been a wonderful conversation and uh, I think we will uh, give yourself a break and uh, and we'll be back in a few moments. Welcome back to History 605 and our conversation about Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Colonel Roosevelt. You may have been wondering what is going on with History 605. Well, we've tried something uh, different today and with my uh, guest is uh, Chuck Chalbert. So uh, Chuck, I wonder if you can you can uh, share with us some of your reenacting experiences and why you got into uh, first-person interpretation of reenacting. My dad was a uh, an amateur thespian, and I have wonderful okay. memories. He was a a college uh, junior college, as they were called in the old days, not not community colleges in uh, central Minnesota in the Lakes area. And there was a, a summer stock theater there. They would bring in you know equity pros from New York mm -hmm. for the summer. And, and fill in with locals, and, and 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 my dad was one of the locals, and I still this goes back a long ways, but I still remember watching him uh, perform, and, he, and he'd been a high school thespian teacher before he became a college administrator, and I would try out for plays in college, and I didn't get picked for much, so I didn't, I kind of dismissed it, and now I'm teaching at a community college in the suburbs of the Twin Cities for the big classes, yeah. like history. They used the theater, it doubled as a classroom because it would seat you know, a couple okay. hundred people. And, sure. and we, the model then was you do three lectures a week and then you'd break them into discussion groups and it would, instead of TAs running them, the teacher would run them. And, yeah. and so I looked around and thought, well, nobody can tell me, no, I can just do this. And uh, uh, there was a fellow at the U, David Noble, uh, who quite well-known, he's gone now, but quite a well-known teacher at Minnesota, at the University of Minnesota, mm -hmm. who would 
do this in a modified way. He put a, an okay. academic robe on and come in as Wilson. Oh, okay. And he'd, uh, I think he would do Jefferson. I took his seminar. I never took his his uh, uh, lecture course, but I knew that he was doing this. And so the first character I did was uh, Edmund Ruffin. I'd been reading okay. his diaries for some reason. God knows why. And so I rented a Confederate uniform. He was the guy who got the honor of firing the first shot on Fort Sumter. Okay. He was a planter in Virginia. And near the end of the war, he went back to his plantation. The Yankees knew who full, full well who he was yeah. and ruined the plantation, yeah. spreading excrement on the walls and God yeah. knows what. And he took a long gun out and blew his head off oh, at the end of the war. Uh, I stopped short of that, but I... Yeah. I would. I rented. He had a long. He had long, flowing white hair, and I rented a wig. And I, I, I did him for a few Civil War roundtables, and that was okay. that. And the first character I did out and about really was um, was a member of the Lunatic Fringe. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it was Ignatius Donnelly, okay, the old populist who okay. wrote the Populist Platform. Okay, in 1892. Okay. We meet in the nation, and the nation brought to the verge of moral, political, material ruin, confession, confession, con corruption, die anyway. Uh, yeah. uh, so I, I, the Minnesota Historical, uh, no, it was the Minnesota Humanities Commission okay. that tried to revive, this goes back to the late 70s, Okay. tried to revive the, uh, did revive the old Chautauqua idea. Yeah, yeah. But it, it wasn't a traveling tent show. They would call it the Chautauqua, and then we'd go to you know, VFW halls or libraries okay. and in small towns around Minnesota. Uh -huh. And it specifically had to be towns that didn't have a college, didn't, that normally wouldn't get something like this. Yeah. And I did um, Donnelly for them. And then I, I'd always been an H.L. Mencken fan. Okay. And I talked them into uh, letting me add him to the, to the, to roster. the, to the roster. Yeah. And then they, sometime I'm guessing, I did this for a number of summers in the 80s. And they asked me to add Teddy. Okay. And so I did add Teddy yeah. and start doing him for. And there was there was never a, a script for Teddy. The others there was a script. I mean, uh -huh. I made I wrote a script. And, right. And with Teddy, it was always Q and A. Okay. Out of the shoot. Uh, okay. And and so then, how does how does how do you prepare then for a performance as Theodore Roosevelt? I mean, what, when you went on. Uh, first time and so forth. Oh, wow. Just walk through the steps of of pulling that off, right? Everything from the writing crop, which you use, to the to the intellectual, you know, learning the speeches and getting to know yeah, getting I to know the man. I just plow through his writings and plow mm -hmm. through books, and, and he wrote I quite a bit. He wrote quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and I uh, had a shoebox full of. You know, five by eight cards. Okay. On, on different categories and just follow them away, and then okay. you know keep going over them until right. they become part of you. And, right. And uh, and then when I do, um, uh, even even today, I'm doing the show today, I yeah. try to do some things at the start that key off of where I am and you know what there might be some connection that right. I, could, right. I could do and with with. Um, Roosevelt is the the, 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 the war vote in, in, in yeah. South Dakota. And discovering this, this congressman, this uh, royal cleave 
C L E A V E. Very strange. Uh -huh. Must be a family name. Must be the probably. mother's maiden name. Yeah. Johnson, who voted against the war going in, voted against World War One. Voted against World War One, and then turned around and and he didn't resign. He took a leave of absence from Congress. Okay. And went to France and fought and got got seriously wounded. But came back and and, and picked up his picked seat. up yeah served until the end of the Hoover presidency. It's mm -hmm. a great story. I know nothing yeah. else about him, well, but I'd like to find out more. Yeah, thanks for highlighting that to to me today. Because yeah. I'll have to dig into Royal C. Johnson and yeah. what the story is between voting no and then putting Deciding on a uniform yeah. and going to France and then coming back and picking a seat. Yeah, back and Arch, uh, Archie Roosevelt's son Archie. Uh, was wounded. Mm -hmm. One died. Clement died. Uh, Clement. Or Quentin. 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 I've got a grandson, Clement. Okay. Um, uh, uh, died. Uh, but Archie is the, as I understand it, is the only American soldier who got a full disability from wounds suffered in both World Wars, World War One oh. and World War Two. And, wow. and of course, Ted. Ted Jr. Yeah. Uh, was the oldest man on the beach yes. on Normandy. Yeah. And he was accompanied. I don't know if it was the only father-son, but he had a son named after his dead brother, Quentin, oh. who went on the beach with him. And he survived, Ted Jr. survived the, the, assault? the yeah. assault and died of a heart attack in July yeah. of 1944. Uh, yeah. Just a few weeks Incredible. later. Incredible. It's very, you know, he was a... Uh, uh, the reverse of Ted of, of Teddy. Ted, okay. Teddy was a, a very good politician and a kind of a dilettante amateur soldier. Yeah. And yeah. his son Ted was a very good soldier. Yeah. And a, not a very good politician. Not a very good politician. <laughs> yeah. Well, what here we are in South Dakota, and you're here today for the uh, Civics and History Summit that has just been put on by the Department of Ed, and you, you did a performance among uh, kind of a. a a host of different historical characters, and we've had uh, George Washington and, and Thomas Jefferson uh, played by different people, and I'm, so I'm really glad to get to talk to you about this. What what often comes up with the George Washington character and the Thomas Jefferson character is the people who ask them, what do you think about your face being carved on Mount Rushmore? <laughs> so this morning you got that question and you, you artfully dodged it because you were playing uh, as if the mountain wasn't there yet. Right. Yeah. But what do you think Teddy Roosevelt would think of, of uh, given his naturalism and his advocacy for the national parks and conservation and so forth? What do you think of what he you would know, think of that? I, I have thought about that more than a few times. And I think on the one hand, he would feel quite proud that he's there. And on the mm -hmm. other hand, I think he'd be a little embarrassed. Okay. I, I don't know if I'm right. Yeah. But I, I don't think... I don't think he would think he belongs with Washington or Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, I think he, Jefferson, he would think Jefferson doesn't belong, doesn't there, belong either. there either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. He, he, and I, if I can add this, I, I think the most admirable thing about him was his character. Uh -huh. I, I, he was a good man, uh, frantic and, 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 and full of himself, but um, a square shooter. Yeah. Uh, uh, he wanted to do the right thing, and he worried about. And and he was. He didn't think he was half the man that his father was. Uh, uh, yeah. 
That's uh, very clear in the things I've read about yeah. him is that he really idolized his Yes, dad. yeah. Now, you, yeah. I'm sorry. You did bring up this morning that his father bought, uh, his father paid for somebody else to go in his service during the Civil War. Yep. And that that was kind of a chink in the family honor that he, do you think he really, that was a chip on his shoulder that his dad didn't serve and he needed to repair the family's well, name? I, 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 he knew why. Uh, his mother was from Georgia. His mother was a Southerner. His mother insisted that the father not go. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she was, uh, what should, how do I say this? She was, uh, 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 oh dear, the, the, the disease of the day in the night, late 19th century was neurasthenia. Okay. Uh, which was, sometimes I think of it sort of like the, the contagion, the social contagion today of transgenderism. It was, mm -hmm. the, it was the end disease mm -hmm. of the late 19th century. It, okay. was, it was, you know, urban, you know, like people, you know, anxious, anxious yes, behaviors. Yes, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and she, she um, uh, didn't want him to leave her. Mm -hmm. He met her when she was fifteen, and they married not too many years okay. after that. She was a child bride. Wow. And just as Teddy, Teddy's first wife. And so they were married in the eighteen fifties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and she, uh, really, the the oldest of the four was Anna, and they called. I never, it's B-A-M-I-E, whether it's Bamie or Bammy, I'm not sure. Uh -huh. And I have read that she essentially was the mother. Okay. The, 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 the Mitty, Martha, was uh -huh. just always kind of too weak to do okay. much of anything. But the other factor was she had a brother, uh, James Bullock, who was a Confederate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, he had spent a lot of time in England working to get the Laird Rams to, you know, to interrupt the shipping okay. from the north and, and he never came back he, he he is buried in england oh and the grave uh, his request said born an american died an englishman no, wow <laughs> uh, well but the, uh, the other interesting rinse. thing is that that, <laughs> that, that um, uh teddy's uncle robert uh -huh. barnwell roosevelt okay uh did serve he was a democrat uh -huh. and he was a, a philanderer uh, okay. He he had he had a wife and a mistress, uh -huh. and and he had children with the mistress, and some of those children were Rough Riders with Teddy Roosevelt. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, we had talked about before we started recording some of the things about the the Rough Riders, and um, he, he you had mentioned some type. Well, you didn't use the word nuance, but I guess I will. You, he had a kind of a nuanced understanding of, of the role of war and peace. You brought that up a little bit in the recording mm -hmm. now about the Tolstoy comments mm -hmm. that uh, Teddy was a peacemaker, not a peace lover. Mm -hmm. um, what are, and then how does he uh, see that as a foreign policy as president? Uh, say, with, he's got a corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, right? Mm -hmm. He tries to build up the Navy. Doesn't think much about the Army, although he, well, he appreciates that. Uh, their role, as as you had Theodore say just now, he's not a he's not a big army, regular army uh, believer. Um, but yet, uh, so there's a strong United yeah. States with a strong Navy. Um, what's what's and then the the Kipling 
role. How does all that kind of feed into his think about what's America's role in the world? Wow. Um, well, he was not a Wilsonian. Roosevelt. He was very, he was very much opposed to the League of Nations, joining the League of Nations. Mm -hmm. Well, Henry Cabot Lodge was a good friend of his, mm -hmm. and and but it was deeper than that. He just thought um, that. The, when Wilson at one point said we need to uh, uh, assure an independent Poland, Roosevelt's response was, that's preposterous. The United States is going to, we can't do that. Yeah. Uh, and, and the whole idea of self-determination of nations, where the UN is going to, the UN, the yeah. League of Nations is going to assure that. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Um, yeah. uh, the, he really, you know, it was, it was a war of, of defense. Yeah. Primarily. And of course, until the uh, intercontinental ballistic missile, we had essentially free security, two yeah. oceans, right. and no great enemies right. uh, of any power anywhere right. in, in this hemisphere. Right. But I, yeah, he was not an idealist in the sense that we ought to be about, um, you know, the great uh, John Quincy Adams line, don't go abroad for monsters Just to, to destroy. destroy. Right. Uh, is very much, um, there's a, a, an historian who just died, he was killed in a car accident about a year, well, be two years this fall, mm. Angelo Cotavia, oh, no. he, he, he would uh, do a lot of writing for the Claremont Review of Books, okay. and he wrote a book, it was only published after he died, mm. on John Quincy Adams, oh. and what he would think of what has happened since then. Yeah. And it's a very interesting book. You might want to yeah, uh, yeah. take a look at it someday. Because he, he, he really says, John Quincy Adams through Teddy Roosevelt, uh -huh. it was a national interest foreign policy. What's in the best interest of the United States? Right. Since then, and since Wilson, yeah. it's been, in his mind, he calls it the progressive foreign policy. Okay. We're, we're going in search of monsters. You know, right, the, this thing called the international communist conspiracy. Right. comes into play there. That yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot of, a lot of conspiracies. <laughs> um, but when just going back to some of your preparation for oh. preparing them, there's also kind of the, a wide public audience and different, certainly different levels of understanding and knowledge about Theodore Roosevelt. So how do you prepare for that uneven preparation of the audience for your performance. Wow, that's hard. Yeah. That really is, is, is hard. I try to um, emphasize the personal side of things as much as I can. Yeah. Uh, really the playoff is uh, what I think is his strongest suit, his, his character, and, and how important he thought it was that people be of, of good character uh, and how to go about achieving that. Most of what I have done has either been for summer Chautauquas, where the audience is all over the map, um, but I've done a number of colleges over the years, as any number of the characters that I do, and, right. I've, been, and, I've, and I've done Teddy uh, for okay. a number of colleges. In most instances, the, the the history department, you know, gives extra credit if if the students will come. I've been to yeah. colleges where the kids will hand in their name card afterwards or they get credit for coming to this thing. So you, you kind of assure that these people are, yeah. you know, know, know a bit. Well, but that is a good trick to kind of stick <laughs> to the personal details that 
a lot of people won't know. Yeah. And so it's new to many people. Yeah. And it's also insightful as to how he would tackle issues about foreign policy or domestic policy mm -hmm. or strikes or big labor or any of these things that you went through today. Mm -hmm. How good was he as a campaigner? He's kind of in an era where, I mean, McKinley still sat on his front porch and he didn't yep. go out and campaign. Yep. Vice okay. presidential candidate, Teddy Roosevelt, did campaign. My grandfather took a photograph of him in 1912 uh, oh, in yeah. Joplin, Missouri. We have wow. the gla glass, my mom does, wow. has the glass plate negative of that oh, photograph. Neat, neat. Yeah, so there he is on the back of a, of a train car with his fist in the air talking yeah. to uh, the crowd there in Joplin, Missouri. He he campaigned for McKinley in '96 a lot. Okay. And, uh, uh, um, and of course, Brian did. Brian may have been the first the first to really campaign. Go out and campaign. Okay. I'm not sure about that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. If that's uh, Roosevelt campaigned strongly in the Midwest. Yeah. And carried a number of states for McKinley. Okay. I think he was a very effective. Yeah. He loved it. Well, and what catapult uh, was it the because probably his name recognition isn't really much of anything until the war. I, I think that's probably true. Right. Yeah. What do you think he would think of the the Medal of Honor that he won in the year 2000, some 80 years after his death? Well, I mean, he thought he deserved it at the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. He, he, was, he really was disappointed that he didn't get the, the Medal of Honor for what he did in Cuba. He did not expect to survive. He had uh, already made plans to will his, you know, revolver and his this and that to yeah. this that son, that son. Um, yeah. Because he expected, and she, and she was, Edith, the second wife, was uh, very sick. And he went anyway and expected wow. to die and yeah. and then didn't. <laughs> he didn't want to take the vice presidency. Right. You know, I wasn't, I was reading not long ago, I don't remember why, that when he ran in 04, he ran against a judge, Alton Parker, the, the the vice presidential nominee of the Democratic Party, was from. It was a senator from West Virginia. He was 81, but he had a lot of money. The campaign was going to be financed. Self-financed by this guy. But he was not exactly <laughs> presidential material. But nobody worried about that particular. Yeah. And really, when he was ETR was nominated, they were trying to bury him. I mean, there was a <laughs> war going on within the Republican Party between as they were then called the old guard, and the uh, insurgents, as they were also called, the uh -huh. La Follette insurgents, okay. the progressives. The, the parties were divided uh, in those days right? between their left and right wings, if we want to use those terms. Yeah. Well, and let's talk about, the, we'll wrap up a little bit about the progressive movement. What, what do you think the distinction is maybe between uh, Teddy Roosevelt progressivism and Woodrow Wilson progressivism? Well, there were a lot of distinctions in the 1912 campaign, uh, the new freedom of Wilson versus mm -hmm. the new nationalism of TR. And Wilson campaigned as a progressive, but a very, yeah, you're right, a very different, a progressive that still emphasized states' rights. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where Roosevelt, you didn't do anything as governor of New Jersey about, you know, letting corporations just, you know, yeah. metastasize in New Jersey. As the Wilson administration unfolded, it did become much more new nationalist than Wilson had campaigned uh -huh. in 1912. The Federal Trade Commission and, and uh, well, and then of course some of the stuff that, that he did during the war to right. nationalize things that 
Roosevelt didn't object to once it, once they were underway. The, the bigger difference is ultimately were the foreign policy yeah. differences okay. between the you know the East Coast progressives who were very much for getting into the war versus the Midwest progressives who yeah. were not. And Wilson was you know waffling uh -huh. between the two. I've read that he was prepared to resign had he lost in 1916 to say, you know, let's get going, with it. let's get the new administration going right away. I don't know if he would have done it. Well, Chuck, uh, thanks for coming on History 605. This has been a great conversation and uh, a lot of fun. We'd certainly appreciate you coming to South Dakota and Sioux Falls for the History and Civic Summit for the teachers and uh, glad to have you on this. Well, I'm entirely welcome and thank you for for having me and having Teddy at the same time to, sure. to do it. It's fun to be here. Great. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.